Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and open them to Isaiah 43. It is on page 717 in your pew Bible. I'm turning to this passage for many reasons. We will begin the sermon this morning by the reading of Isaiah 43, 1 through 7. We will end this morning by the reading of the same passage. However, this is a very different sort of gathering and sermon this morning. It's not going to be an exposition of that particular passage, but that passage stands as a reminder to us, really, of all the things that I'm going to say this morning as we summarize our study in the book of Isaiah. I've been wanting to end our study in the book of Isaiah in this particular way for some time now. As a preacher, the author of whatever book we are studying becomes for us like a, a very close and intimate friend in many ways. Now, it's a one-way friendship. I guarantee you that I have not spoken to Isaiah, uh, nor he to me. But we do nonetheless spend countless hours together. And as a preacher, we get to know much about the author and his book. In fact, we get to know far more than we're able to communicate in a series of sermons, no matter how long those sermons may last, as far as years. Isaiah, his name means the Lord is salvation. We noted that at the very beginning of our study. And true to his name, the Lord set before us through the prophet Isaiah, his salvation from the very beginning of the book until its final verse. Speaking about the author, we recognize that he is merely a human author. And I've already said to you in other occasions that there is very little about Isaiah that we actually know for sure. The Bible, of course, tells us very little about his life. But the Bible has, of course, a divine author who leads us, who guides us in our understanding, and who leaves us with lessons for this life that are invaluable and carry us forward in this fallen world. That is no less true for me in this series of preaching through Isaiah. I hope it is in some small measure true for you as well. And so what I want to do this morning is to set before you seven lessons, seven because it's a number of perfection. I could have gone more or less, but I chose seven that the Lord has taught me personally through our study together of this book. And again, my hope is that some of these would resonate with each one of you this morning as you've been with us for this uh, time together in Isaiah. And so let's begin with the reading of this passage. I'll ask that you stand as we read God's word from Isaiah 43, that you give careful attention to this as the living word of God. Isaiah 43, verse 1 through verse 7. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. 
I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Thus far the reading of God's word, all flesh is as the grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. O Father, bless all that we do now as we come again to this, your word. You would bless it to our hearing and growth in Christ, that we might know you better, and we might know your purpose in our lives as you have called us and set us apart as your people. Be gracious unto us now for your own name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In a previous church, I remember taking a walk with one of the elders serving on the session at the time. We were at a session retreat. We were talking about various things related to life in the church. And at one point, as we were speaking about the subject of preaching and sermons that we have listened to over the years, he said to me, he said, you know, Ted, I can honestly say that I cannot remember Uh, hardly any of the sermons, only a handful of the sermons that I've heard throughout my life, and I've listened to thousands of them. And I agreed with him that it is difficult to remember uh, specifics of so many of the sermons we have listened to over the years. And then as we continued to talk, we both noted, he first and then me with him, and agreed that it was not so much the specific content of the sermons we've heard over the years, as much as it was the act of listening itself and the way God blesses his word as we give ourselves to this ordinary means of God's grace. It is the impact of being under the word preached that is the most important thing. That word preached, of course, faithfully. I was reminded as we talked about those things of our uh, larger catechism, question 160, what is required of those who hear the word preached? It is required of those that hear the word preached, that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. They examine what they hear by the scriptures. They receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. They meditate and confer of it, hide it in their hearts, and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. Well said. All of us who have ever sat under preaching, the faithful preaching of God's word, know that in fact this is what we are called to do. As week after week, morning and evening, we sit under the faithful preaching of God's word. We give our attention to it. We may not remember many of those sermons. 
But just the act of listening, submitting ourselves to God as we listen, is the most important thing. Well, we've been doing this for quite a long time. You've been listening to sermons on Isaiah for a while. Tempest fugit time flies, and it flies quickly. I compiled just for my own interest and curiosity a list of those things that were not true when we began this series uh, in Isaiah on February 11th, 2018. My, how time flies. Since the start of that series in that year, these saints have gone home to glory. Janet Middleton, Nancy McCochran, Elder Chuck Weber, George Stransky, Loretta Kennedy. At that time, these precious children who are among us now were not yet born. Emma and Asher Wilson, Eva Sophia, Ava Sophia Hasbin, Hazel Tyner, Landon Weisbrod, Carson Donaldson, Roman and Skylar Jewell, with a special mention to Remy Lombardo, who was only five days old when we began this study. In that year, the following were not yet married. Joel and Lorena has been. David and Jessica has been. Johan and Grace has been. A lot of has-beens. <laughs> Jeremy and Deanna Donaldson, Michael and Patricia Minisi, Andre and Carrie Assis, who are, by the way, celebrating their first anniversary this very day. Some here today were not with us when we began our series in 2018, and we are so very thankful to the Lord that you are with us now. Others were here then but have left us. We miss them, we pray for them, and the Lord's blessings upon them always as he is pleased. And of course, over all of that time, we've had a variety of hard, difficult providences, cancer diagnoses, along with other diseases. There have been many travels, graduations, surgeries, deaths, other deaths, job changes, moves, and many more things under the rule and will of our God who is over and above time and who orders all things for our good and for his own glory. All of that took place while we were studying the prophet Isaiah. Time does, in fact, fly. This morning, I want to set before you these seven lessons that the Lord taught to me personally over these three-plus years. I want to begin with one that uh, really was probably the most um, impactful and surprising to me as we studied the book of Isaiah. And that is this, number one, the doctrine of creation as it is found in Isaiah. Now, I was very surprised as I studied Isaiah through these years that the understanding and doctrine of God as our creator was so central in Isaiah's mind. For instance, in Isaiah 45, verses 11, 12, and 18, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth. I created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all of their host. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, 
who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. When God sought to separate himself from the idols, another theme that we'll talk about in a moment, he most often did so by contrasting them, not gods at all, with himself, who is the creator God. Now, why would he do that? Why would he speak so often about himself being creator? It is simply this, to show Isaiah, to show the people to whom Isaiah writes, to show you and I that he is all powerful, that there is no one like him, that creation sets him apart, that he created all things out of nothing, sets him apart as a God of power and of glory and of majesty and of beauty. The one who says to the oceans, this far and no further, is the God who is our God. And so obviously one of the reasons, the main reasons why Isaiah focuses so much on the aspect of God as creator of all things is to encourage us and to remind us that there is nothing more powerful than this God. And there is nothing that this God who created all things cannot himself do for us, for his people. Everything that he talks about is rooted in this understanding of God as our great creator, God. That caused me throughout my study, especially certain passages when I came to them and saw so clearly, like Isaiah 45, that Isaiah was so focused upon this. It reminds us of our own day where the doctrine of creation, as in other days, has fallen into sort of this place where people just see it as an option well, well, you can believe that God created all things, that God created Adam and Eve uniquely, as the Bible says, out of the dust of the ground and Eve out of Adam. You can believe that or not. After all, it's not one of those major doctrines, right? My contention as I come out of the study of Isaiah is if we take away the doctrine of creation as the Bible describes it and defines it so very clearly, not only in Genesis, but throughout the Old and New Testament, we take away one of the most important comforts that we have as believers, that our God is the God who made all of this and that he is on our side. He is our defender. He is our strong God, demonstrated, of course, ultimately in the person of his son. Many of you may remember years ago now, I think it was back in 2009, the issue of Biologos, which is a group, an organization that seeks to meld together, merge together biblical faith and science. That that became a very uh, controversial issue within our own denomination as some of our own leaders within our denomination were part of Biologos and were endorsing the teaching of Biologos. This is what they say on their website. We believe that God created the universe, the earth, and all of life over billions of years, and that God continues to sustain the existence and functioning of the natural world, and the cosmos continues to declare the glory of God. With respect to the creation, the unique creation of Adam and Eve themselves, uh, they believe that they were not, as the Bible says, the original progenitors of creation or of mankind, that all mankind descended from Adam and Eve, as the Bible so clearly teaches. 
but that somewhere in the evolutionary process of which all life is part and parcel of the same original beginning, that somewhere in that process, the development of humankind, God directed his careful attention to two, Adam and Eve, somewhere in that history, perhaps six to 10,000 years ago. But those Adam, that Adam and Eve were not uniquely created, but evolved out of previous life forms. I think all of this, in my mind, undermines this very comfort that we take, that God is the one who created, yes, everything, out of nothing, in the space of six days, six ordinary days. Now, we can debate and talk about those days and what those days might have been like, but our confession, our catechisms are, again, very clear What is the work of creation? Question 15, larger catechism. The work of creation is that wherein God did in the beginning, by the word of his power, by the word of his power, make of nothing the world and all things therein for himself within the space of six days and all very good. And how did he create man? Is it like Biologa says, or is it like what God says in his word? After God had made all the other creatures... He created man, male and female, formed the body of the man of the dust of the ground, not of some pre-existing sort of evolved uh, humanity, and the woman of the rib of the man, endued them with living, reasonable, and immortal souls, made them after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and dominion over the creatures yet subject to to fall. That is how God made man. And that aspect of God creating, whether it be man as he's referenced in the passages we've read, or whether it be Israel itself and and the people of God of old as he created them out of a nation, called them and set them apart, he says, the Lord is seeking to comfort us. And we uh, we would lose that comfort if we neglected this great truth. Again, you remember those words from the beginning of Isaiah 40, that beginning of the second part of Isaiah where God's intent is to comfort his people. Listen to how creation is a part of this. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The only God who can give power to weak and frail creatures like ourselves is the God who has made all things by the word of his power. He is the one who gives power and encouragement to his people. The second point I want to mention, the second lesson, and I took great comfort from that first one in my own life as I continue to remember my creator God. The second one is the wrath of God against sin. Many of you will remember how difficult it was to go through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah 
It was one oracle of judgment after another, eventually, after the first initial chapters where you see some of the prophecies of our Lord's coming, his birth, etc. We were just in this endless cycle of God's oracles of judgment, and it reminded me of the importance of believers, myself especially, to understand the wrath of God against sin. It was that way for me for two reasons. One, I often saw myself in the life of Israel and Judah as the Lord spoke against them. In those chapters, there are oracles against Judah. There are oracles against Israel. Isaiah spoke to both nations. He reminded them that their sin and their disobedience, their rebellion against God was no better, was far worse, in fact, because of the love he had shown them than the rebellion of just the nations around them who persecuted them. That God really does hate sin. That his wrath really is aroused against my sin. That was the first lesson that God taught me. To take my sin more seriously. To look at it more clearly as God sees it. That he is a God who is thrice holy as Isaiah saw him in his initial call. That he is a God uh, who hates the rebellion and sin of his people. That it's important for us to deal quickly with our sins and to walk in that newness of life to which he has called us. But there was a second lesson and one in which I took great comfort from the Lord in this teaching of his wrath against sin. And we saw it primarily towards the end of our study in Isaiah. And that is, it was a reminder to me that God will in fact judge my enemies and his enemies as well. That God is not mocked, as many uh, say uh, about him. That he won't ever pour out his wrath. He's just a God, as Peter notes, of those in his own day would say, where is the promise of his coming? This God who says he's coming. And you remember the language of Peter in those verses as he talks about the heavens and the earth being burned with fire. It's an expression of his wrath. And it's a reminder that God will indeed defend us against our enemies. We may not know in this life, in our own experience and lives, the full release from our enemies. In fact, I think the Bible is very clear that our enemies will continue to assault the church and believers throughout this time until Christ comes again. But the hope is and the promise is that because he's a God who hates sin and his wrath burns against it, that he will one day judge this world and all who rebel against his sovereign authority and rule. The enemies of Christ and his people are great. They're great, whether we think of the devil himself, the world itself, our own hearts that often choose sin over Uh, obedience to Christ, whatever the case may be, it seems as if as time goes on, those enemies are greater still, and the battles are stronger and greater. I was reminded this week, actually very recently, of a monologue that was given by Paul Harvey. I had known about this, but I had never read through it. But Paul Harvey, of course, that's the rest of the story guy. Now for the rest of the story. Well, he wrote these words, and I want you to listen to them because it captures, I think, where we are today, and it reminds us, no matter how great our enemies, no matter his ways, Satan himself especially, 
God hates these things. His wrath burns against them, and he will judge the wicked. He wrote this in 1965. He was not a prophet, but listen to the words he said. He said, if I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness, and I would have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree. The, he says. Now he's talking about the United States. That was his view at that time, that we stood still as a, a beacon in the midst of the darkness of the world. And then he said this, so I would set about however necessary to take over the United States. I would subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, go ahead and do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what is bad is good and what is good is square. And the old I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd make TV look worse than movies and then make movies look worse than TV in a vicious cycle that just gets worse and worse. I would peddle narcotics to whomever I could. I would sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction, and I would tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects but neglect to discipline emotions. Just let those run wild until before you knew it, you'd have a drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon, I could evict God from the courthouse and then from the schoolhouse and then from the houses of Congress and in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I would take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what will you bet I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as a way to get rich? I would caution against extremes in hard work and patriotism and moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, and that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. 1965, you wrote that. The enemies of our culture are far greater still. He was not a prophet, but he spoke truth. It's far worse in 1965. But no matter the enemy, God hates sin. He hates those who are opposed to him. He hates those who sow dissension like this. And God's wrath will be poured out upon them. Thirdly, 
I was struck in Isaiah of the importance in Isaiah's writing and in God's revelation about the folly of idolatry. Isaiah 44 says this, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do no profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is, a prof- that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, and they shall be put to shame together. The emphasis of Isaiah on the shamefulness of uh, constructing and building idols that we would bow down to, idols of stone or wood that we would make with our own hands and burn half of it. Remember those passages in Isaiah burn half of it in a fire to keep us warm, sit on another half that is, or another portion that we sit before the fire, and then bow down and worship the remaining part. The folly, the insanity of idolatry helped me to see in my own heart as I studied Isaiah of the idols that I've erected in the place of God. Idolatry at its very core is anything that we value, that we worship, that we desire more than God himself and the fullness of who he is. And Isaiah says clearly, there is a folly in idolatry that will lead to nothing. And so I was reminded, challenged, convicted of destroying, getting rid of the idols in my own heart. And I trust and hope you have been as well. Related to this, a fourth lesson that God taught me during this study is the jealousy he has for his own glory. This was most often seen in the context of the discussion of idolatry. I am the Lord, he says in chapter 42. That is my name, Jehovah. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. To understand, as God taught me in our study of Isaiah, that God made me redeemed me for his own glory, that my life is to be given for his glory, that in my life his glory is to be declared to all who see me as the one called out of darkness and brought into the light of his son, that this is what God's purpose and intent is. Now, I had always known, as I trust you have as well, that everything God does is for one aim and purpose, and that is his own glory. But it was refreshing, striking, challenging, convicting to see that God has a jealousy for that glory, a jealousy that in everything he would receive glory. So my idolatry was stealing God's glory. I was, as we noted in our study, a glory thief. I was stealing from God in the worship that I offered to the idols of my own imagination, the things that I served, whatever those things would be in my own life. And I saw in a fresh way God's jealousy that he has for his own glory. Fifthly, I saw, and I was not surprised at this one, I saw the centrality of the person of Jesus Christ throughout our study in Isaiah. It began when we see Isaiah being called as a prophet. The New Testament tells us that what Isaiah actually saw was the pre-incarnate person of the Lord Jesus Christ seated upon the throne of God. 
And his glory was filling, as it were, the train of the temple was filling the earth. That that is what Isaiah saw. He saw Jesus. I don't know how Isaiah died. Nobody does, for sure. Hebrews 11 seems to allude to a tradition in the Jewish religion uh, in, in some of its writings that Isaiah was the one referred to in Hebrews 11 as one sawn in half or in two, most likely during the reign of King Manasseh. Nobody knows whether that's true or not. But, but I like, as I spent so much time with Isaiah and saw his absolute focus from beginning to end on the centrality of the person of Christ, I would like to think of him like Stephen, who stood at his death being stoned by those gathered around him and saw the risen Christ in heaven standing from his seat to welcome Stephen, that I would, I would like to think of Isaiah if he were to face that kind of death, that he would have been one who saw again this risen Christ welcoming him home to glory. Pre-incarnate, yes, but still the same Christ of which he spoke so powerfully and beautifully throughout his prophecy. Remember the Lord said, I looked at the condition of my people. I looked at them and I saw that there was no one to intercede. And so he said, my own arm, my own right arm saved them. My own right arm accomplished salvation. Jesus is the embodiment, the person whom God used his own son to save a rebellious people like me and like you. When there was no one to save, Jesus stepped in and he saved his people. We introdu we're introduced to him in, in a clear way in Isaiah 7 as a rebellious king refuses to ask God for a sign. And Ahaz just absolutely refuses. And Isaiah says, well, the Lord's going to give you a sign. The virgin shall bear a child. And in Isaiah 9, we see the wonderful, glorious, divine names of this child, a son given, a child born. Isaiah 11 speaks about this branch that the Lord has established in the earth. And then Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53 all speak of the suffering servant of God who is no other than the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. It reaches its highest point, of course, in the passage read earlier in Isaiah 53. Surely he, that is Jesus, has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he wasn't that. He wasn't being punished for something that he did. He was pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah writes. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah truly is, as I've finished this study, he really lives up to his name. He is the prophet of the gospel, the good news of God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Number six, if you're keeping track, the sixth lesson the Lord taught me personally 
was this aspect of the great exchange that comes to us through Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 pictures that exchange. He died in our place. He took our sins upon him. By his chastisement, we have peace and we have righteousness. This was so clear to me, especially in the latter part of our study, that God's expressions that he used about his people in the latter part of the book, 40 through 66, were so tied to the work of our Savior that what God was doing in Jesus was giving, as Isaiah 61 says, beauty for ashes, the ashes of our repentance, our mourning because of our sin, the ashes and the brokenness of our lives because of sin, that God was taking that away and giving us a glory and a beauty that can only be understood as we see it in the person and through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. All throughout the latter part, especially in 58 through 66, we see this picture of this great and wonderful exchange that God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. I've mentioned this several times. People will no doubt begin to start to tell me, Pastor, use the same illustrations over and over again. I can't help it. This one especially I love. It's from a children's cartoon for Christmas. You've heard it before. It's called Red Boots for Christmas. It's an old Lutheran sort of half hour short on Christmas. But this story is of a, a shoemaker who is visited by an angel, is going to have a special visitor who comes, and he knows that special visitor to be, of course, on Christmas, God himself. And as he's walking in the street one day, the friend, an older woman who has long um, lost her health, is weary, is herself trying to give a gift that he's part of to her granddaughter, he asks her this question, what would you give God for Christmas, he said to her? And, I, and this is a children's cartoon. I love this answer. She said, I will give him what I give him every day, my sins for his pardon, my weakness for his strength, my sorrow for his joy. There's the great exchange, not the fullness of it, the righteousness that comes, but the beauty of that exchange that comes through our relationship with Jesus Christ. What is our only hope, according to Isaiah, our only confidence? What is our true lasting beauty? It is this and this alone, that we stand before him having our sins washed away by the blood of Christ, and we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, having received the forgiveness of our sins and that perfect righteousness by grace alone and through faith alone. Finally, if creation and God as creator was the most surprising, uh, this is, for me at least, one of the most um, encouraging and one that I, I truly grew in my knowledge of these things through our study of Isaiah. And that is Zion and God's people. The name Zion appears 50 times in Isaiah it's one of his most often used words, and it's a prominent theme. It represents, of course, the city of Jerusalem itself, but it also represents his people. And what I learned is this. 
Zion or Jerusalem, the city, are the people of God. There's no difference between the two. There just isn't. And in fact, I would argue there never has been, even in Isaiah's day. In Isaiah 51, he says this, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. He makes her wilderness like Eden. Seems to be talking about a city. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. You see, there is no distinction between them. When you get to the New Testament, you begin to look. We looked last week at Galatians 4. Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. She is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, made up of Jew and Gentile alike. Hebrews 12, as we read our passage this morning in the New Testament, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to an assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. Jerusalem, Zion, and the people of God are the same thing. They've always been the same thing. And the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven by the angel to John in Revelation 21 is called the bride or the wife of the lamb. It is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ that John sees gloriously adorned in the righteousness of Christ coming down out of heaven from God. It is the holy city Jerusalem. They are synonymous. They are interchangeable. They are the same. I learned and was encouraged as I listened to a radio, religious radio show one day. It was dealing with the witness that we're to have to the Jewish people who live in our day. And the host made a comment. I was listening. This was several months back. He said, I I am opposed, he said, to that theology which came partially out of the Reformation that he termed replacement theology. And he argued that that was one of the great false teachings of our day. According to replacement theology, he says, people take all that was promised to Israel in the Old Testament as a nation, and they see it as being applied to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Of course, I said, well, yes, amen. This is left over, I think, of some of the more radical teachings of dispensationalism, which taught that the Old Testament people of God were not the same as the New Testament people of God that you essentially had two different peoples. A better term is not replacement theology, but fulfillment theology. It is the fulfillment of the promises of old made to Israel, made to Abraham, that have found their fulfillment in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the new Jerusalem of God and the bride of Christ. And as I studied those last chapters with you, I took great comfort that this is exactly what Isaiah saw. He saw the Gentiles being added, coming in with the Jews to be part of that one glorious people of God, adorned as a bride for the husband of the suffering servant of our Savior. Those are the seven things. Moving very quickly, not spending a lot of time at all, really, on any one particular verse, but giving you a summary of what the Lord taught me. So why the sermon title? It's one of the strangest I've ever put. It's okay. 
I looked up OK. I wanted to know where it came from. It came, most agree, from the 1830s in what was a joke written by a Boston newspaper editor who were all very fascinated at the time, as so many are today, on their smartphones. You know, all these short-handed things, these letters that you use, abbreviations. He originally wrote OW, standing for All Right, but that never caught on. In the same uh, article, he mentioned OK. It means that everything will be all right. Everything will be all right. Everything is all right. For many of us, the past few years have been difficult in many ways. That is something I've come to realize, and I've mentioned to some of you personally in my own life, actually during the time of our study over these three years in Isaiah. It was during this study that I began to sort of say to myself, as the Bible tells us to, it tells us to talk to ourselves, and so I do all the time, and what I found out that I did more often than anything was, it's okay. It's okay. It's become a shorthand for me of a reminder that I say to myself, almost always out loud, sometimes whispering if I'm with others, it's okay. It's okay. God knows me. God loves me. He's able to save me. He's able to help me. In fact, he's already done it in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that God is creator, full of power and strength and able to do whatever he pleases. Reminds me that my enemies who are opposed to me and to you and to the church of Christ will suffer the wrath of God. I pray if he's pleased to suffer it now. If they are opposed to Christ, seeking to stop his church, may God's wrath fall upon them. I don't do that with any sense of delight, but only for the glory and the justice of God and for the growth and privilege or blessing of his church. I've seen the folly of idolatry in my own heart. I've seen his jealousy for his own glory and any rivals that would take its place in my heart. I've seen in a fresh and new way Christ as my Savior, my substitute, my beauty, my glorious dress, my righteousness, and everything Isaiah says he is. And I have been greatly encouraged that I am part of a new home, a new heavens, a new earth, a new people with you and with all who love the Lord called Zion, and that his love rests upon me because he delights in me now, not because of me, There's nothing much to delight in, but because of Christ who lives in me. And so with all of this, I have been able to say for three years and all through whatever may come, it's okay. It really is okay. No matter what happens in my life, no matter what happens in yours right now or in the future, you need to be able to say it's okay. It really is okay. And one of the reasons I'm able to say this is because of the passage we opened with and the one we're going to close with. And so I'm going to read these seven verses again. You listen to them. And if I can be so bold at the end of it, I want you to say with me, it's okay. Okay? (laughs) Listen. But now thus says the Lord, 
He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And all God's people said, it's okay. It is. It's okay. Let's pray. Father, I personally will miss our time with this prophet of which we know so little, but who knew so much of the glory of Christ and of the lessons that we as believers in the 21st century needed to learn, needed to hear, needed to know. May you press these lessons and many others into our hearts and minds. We may never be able to remember one single sermon of this series, but as we have submitted ourselves and humbled ourselves under your word, we are the better for it, and your blessing rests upon us. Bless your word to our hearing and growth. Strengthen us, help us to know that it truly is okay because of all that you have done for us in Christ. And we pray this with thanksgiving in his name. Amen.